All right, so let's, uh, let's finish Hosea. So if you want to open up with me in your Bible to Hosea chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Hosea chapter 13, starting in verse 1. If you don't have your Bible or you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback black one somewhere near you. Uh, we would in- invite you to, to open up to Hosea 13, 1 in there. Uh, just to warn you, if you don't have a Bible open, you may get bored quickly because we're going to be in Hosea, all right? Um, we're, we're going to walk through it this morning, and so I would encourage you to do that. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we would like to invite you to take that Bible home and make it yours, to, to cherish God's Word with us. So Hosea chapter 13, starting in verse 1. So I want to I open up this morning talking about one of the uh, most well-recognized religious leaders in our world today. Her name is Oprah. Have you, have you heard of her? I, I think most of you have, right? Um, so Oprah has, you know, as she has left her daytime talk show and started her own network, um, she, is, she is very into spirituality. In fact, I, I'd forgotten this, but after September 11th happened... There was a gathering at Yankee Stadium in New York City to pray for the nation, and Oprah was the one who led that. Not, not Billy Graham, not, not a, a, a Catholic bishop or, or cardinal. It was, it was Oprah Winfrey that led that. Now, Oprah is very clear. She has been for a long time that she doesn't, she doesn't trust or fall into organized religion. And she may refer to herself as a Christian, but she would tell you that the, the way that Christianity has been displayed ever since um, Jesus discipled his disciples and left them, uh, that's not her kind of Christianity. And she tells this story of how she, she lost her belief in organized religion when she heard a Baptist preacher, because we tend to rub people the wrong way sometimes, she heard a Baptist preacher talk about the jealousy of God. And she thought that that was absurd, that God, God shouldn't be jealous. Now, I think the jealousy that she's thinking about is... The jealousy of... I want to be gentle here... Um, like a middle school girl when she hears that One Direction is breaking up, you know? Um, or maybe for, for, maybe this will connect better with some of y'all. Like, you know, when Yoko broke up the Beatles, right? Um, you know, that, that jealousy of, uh, you know, my, my girlfriend has left me and now she's with another guy. That's how we tend to think of, of jealousy. And so, of course, we would see that in a negative light. But when the Bible talks about God being jealous, what, what it's speaking of is, is the fact that, that he is so committed to his glory and protecting his people that he guards them with a jealousy. And so the, this jealousy tends to, to show itself in two different ways in the scriptures. The first way it shows itself is that God stands as a judge. He judges the actions and thoughts of men and women. But it also shows God as a loving father to his people. He is jealous to guard them, to make sure that they know how much he cares about them. 
And so we're going to be confronted today with what drove Oprah away. But my prayer for you is that this doesn't drive you away. It actually draws you closer to Christ. So before we jump into the text, because we have a lot to cover and we're going to move quickly, I want to present, you, I want to, present to you our big idea. God is a judge to those outside of Jesus. God is a father to those in Jesus. God is a judge to those outside of Jesus. God is a father to those in Jesus. When we say in Jesus and outside of Jesus, we are thinking in the terms that Paul uses often in his letters when he talks about believers being in Christ, right? That that we have been baptized into him as we've turned from our sins and died to ourselves and believed in him and followed him, we are no longer apart from Christ, but we are now in Christ. And so to those outside of Jesus, God is a judge. But to those who are in Christ, he is a father. So we start in verse 1 of chapter 13. God tells the people of Israel this through his prophet Hosea. When Ephraim spoke, there was a trembling He was exalted in Israel, and he incurred guilt. I'm sorry, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make images for themselves, metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifices kiss calves. Therefore they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away like the chaff that swirls from the, fle- from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. So God takes the people of Israel, and remember, let's not forget, that the, the kingdom has divided. It's divided into two. In the north you have Israel, in the south you have Judah. Judah has Jerusalem as its capital. Israel has Samaria as its capital. And so as they've divided Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, which was a descendant of Jacob, but also a son of Joseph. Um, The tribe of Ephraim had become large and powerful and influential. In fact, if you go back through your Old Testament, you will see, especially during the kingdom moments, that there's a a bit of a rivalry between Judah, which was the other large and influential uh, tribe, and Ephraim. And so God is, is reminding them, listen, Ephraim, you have been influential. You have had influence and power among the people of Israel. There was a time when you spoke and everyone in Israel would listen. But now you've fallen because of idolatry. Because you have traded the goodness of the God of Israel, the one who saved Israel from Egypt. God is going to remind them of that very soon. The one who has provided for them in the desert and the one who has given them this grand and amazing kingdom. You have turned your back on him and you have gone to serve the idols. And God says something heartbreaking in, in chapter two, or in verse two of chapter thirteen, you look at the end of chapter or verse two, and he says, "Those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves." Because the people of Israel had moved away from God and moved towards idolatry, 
what ends up happening is they, they go so far into idolatry that they are offering human sacrifices. They are offering their own babies to be, well, to have their, their throats cut and then burned in a fire. This was some of their offerings to idolatry. And they would set up these idols throughout town. And they would make little handmade idols to take into their homes. And oftentimes these idols would be carvings of calves. Which should take us, like you would take the people of Israel, back to the Exodus. Back to what we talked about last week. That when God had delivered Israel through Moses... And then Moses goes up onto the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. They believe that God has forgotten about them, so they build a golden calf. And they feast around it, they get drunk around it, and they worship it. And so God is using his language carefully here when he says, You slaughter your children. You sacrifice human beings. And then you turn around and you kiss Calves. He's not talking about literal calves. He's talking about the statues that they have. That they would bow down to them. They would weep over them. They would kiss them. They would do whatever they could to show these idols that they believed in them. And the funny thing is, is that these idols demanded awful things from these people. And all God asked for was their hearts. He didn't ask them to kill their children. He didn't ask them to do ceremonial dances. He asked them to love him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if they would do that, then everything would be up to give to God, right? They would, they would offer animal sacrifices, not because they had to, but because it was a way to worship and, and continue the relationship. They would offer their fields and their money because they loved God, not because they wanted to get something from him. And so God tells them, he uses four illustrations here. He says, you will be like the mist and the dew that are gone in the morning. You will be like the chaff that is blown away with the wind. You will be like smoke from a window that is there one moment and gone the next. This is a reminder for all of us in here, Christian or non-Christian, that you and your family and your riches and your jobs and the nation that you live in, all of these things are temporary. You are not going to live forever. You may at 15 and 25 think you're going to live forever, but you're not. Those of us that are moving up in age, we're, we're realizing that more and more, right? But there's this, this reality that God wants to lay on our hearts. That You were appointed a day to be born. You were appointed a day to die. But God has placed, as as the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, God has placed eternity in your heart. Not so that you will chase riches or beauty products or, or whatever you think will help you stay young. He, he has put eternity in your hearts to draw you to him, 
to show you that what you need most in this life and the next is him. So we go to verse 4. God tells the people of Israel, But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. If you have a pen and you want to mark in your Bible, that is a great line to underline. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast and there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel. That is so interesting there that God goes from speaking in the first person to speaking in the third person, right? He goes from saying, I, 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 to hear he. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all of your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, Give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. So God begins this section reminding them that he is the God who has always and only been their God. There are no other gods. The idols that they make and bow down to, they are figments of their imagination. He says, I am the one that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he tells them quite clearly, besides me, there is no savior. Do not trust in kings and chariots. Do not think because you have military might that you have all, of, all that you need. Do not think that riches and success will save you. They won't. He, takes, he gives them this illustration to take them through their story as a nation. He says, remember when you were in a drought. Remember when you were slaves in Egypt. Remember when I brought you into the desert and I provided for you. You were like, a, you were like cattle that were grazing. But then you became full. And with your full bellies, you forgot about me. So then he describes how he's going to react to them in his judgment with three very frightening descriptions. He's going to come at them like a lion and a leopard. And he's going to come at them like a mother bear. I saw a picture from someone who I follow on Twitter. And uh, it's, a, it's a park and I'm not sure where the park is, um, but it's got some trails. And as you enter one of the trailheads, it tells you uh, to pay attention because sometimes animal carcasses fall from the trees because of the leopards. And of course, the person I follow on Twitter said, why isn't there a warning about leopards in the trees, <laughs> right? Um, uh, these, these animals that are described here are some of the most fearsome animals and God lets them know this is what judgment is going to be like. Because of your sin against me, I am going to be against you. And it is going to be a terrible ordeal. 
And then he, God enters into this moment where he mocks them. And he doesn't mock them because he's being a smart aleck. He mocks them to show them how absurd their hope in kings is. He says, I'm going to destroy you because you are against me, the one who wanted to help you and provide for you. And then he says, remember, I gave you a king. You asked for it and I gave you, but where is he now? And the funny thing is, is Israel had a king. I mean, they had kings when Hosea was prophesying. When he was delivering these sermons to the people of Israel, there were kings sitting on the throne in Samaria. But their influence and their power was with every king waning and growing smaller. And so he mocks them in their kings. And he reminds them in verse 11, I gave you a king in my anger and I took him away in my wrath. Right? God is reminding them that in 1 Samuel, right? we, we studied this about a year ago, in 1 Samuel, they wanted to be like the people around them. They wanted to keep up with the Joneses. And so they demanded that God give them a king. They weren't happy with prophets and priests. They wanted a king. And so God gave them a king. Saul was, he was handsome and tall and mighty, but he ended up being a coward. And then they got David, who was this, this young man who was, who was so full of trust in the Lord that he took on giants, right? But he ended up being an adulteress and a murderer, and then along comes Solomon. And Solomon is, is, is faithful in what the Lord hands him. And Solomon, you know, God says, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And Solomon says, I want wisdom. And so God gives him wisdom. And you know what Solomon does with that wisdom? He does wise things. He, he builds Israel to the greatest it, will, it, it has ever been. And then he starts bringing wives from outside of Israel in. And he allows them to set up their temples to their gods. And that is the beginning of the end of Israel. The kings were disastrous for the nation of Israel because they didn't need a human king. They had a king in God. But God is so good to work in our sin and rebellion to ultimately redeem us because the kings that Saul and David and Solomon and the rest that followed were not is the king that Jesus is. And so when Jesus comes and he says, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is here, that is good news. The king that Israel longed for, the king that Gentiles didn't even know they needed, had come. But Israel had to be reminded of how messed up they're merely human kings were to know that they needed a God-man as king. Just like you and I who live in this, right? I mean, it is hard for Americans to wrap our minds around a king. In 1776, we told a king to go take a hike, and we've never had someone who tells us what to do, right? Or at least that's what we think, um, our government's growing more and more autocratic and king-like as, as we go along. But that's another discussion for another time. Ultimately, what we need to remember is that the best government in the world is not 
a representational democracy like the United States. The best government in the world is a benevolent dictator if his name is God, right? That's the best government to live under. And so this, this reminder from God is, is not just to kind of jab Israel, but it's to point us to, to, to rejoice in Jesus and to long for when he returns to fulfill his kingdom. Verse 12, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come from him, but he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord, shall come rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall, build, shall, shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall, shall be dashed to, in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Oh. God begins this section by saying, Israel, you are like a baby who it's, it's time to be born. Right? The, the childbearing pain is upon you, but you will not do what you're supposed to do. He moves into this, this, this condemnation of death and Sheol. You have to remember when the Old Testament talks about Sheol, this is not a matter of heaven and hell. It's just the idea of the grave. God is simply talking about death. Everyone dies, so everyone goes to Sheol, all right? And, and so God is, is telling them death and the plagues of death are not the end of the story. Sheol does not have sting because God will raise Israel back up. He will raise his people. Yet, he says, compassion is hidden from my eyes. For the resurrection to happen, there has to be a death. And so he is telling Israel that he is, he is going to put an end to them. And it is, it is violent and it is, it is, it's heartbreaking and it's scary. But the reality that God is laying upon them is that famine, poverty, and war are coming. He mentions the east wind. Think about where Israel is. Israel is on the coast of the Mediterranean, and so when there's a wind that comes from the west, it's coming from the Mediterranean Sea, that's going to offer some water, right, for the crops. But when it's an east wind, it's coming from modern-day Iraq and Iran, which is desert. So what happens when the east wind comes? It's dust. It's dirt. It's sand. God is telling them, that he is going to bring his judgment to bear upon them. And it is going to be awful. Thank God this is not the end of the story. Right? Thank God that Hosea doesn't end in chapter 13. Because we go to chapter 14. And God calls the people of Israel to repent and return. 
He says in 14.1, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vow of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. He's talking about idols there in a very poetic way. In you, the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, What have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. (coughs) I'm like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. And the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. So ultimately what God is calling the people of Israel to is to turn and repent of their sins, to turn away from them, to worship him alone, to no longer bow down to the idols, and then to do good, right? That that small little reminder that, that the orphan will be taken care of, right? In you, the orphan finds mercy. Friends, this is a good reminder that there are children who need our hands and our love, do not forget about the orphans, all right? But that's not the point of the sermon. What what Hosea is doing here, especially when he draws them in in verse 3 with the idea, I'm sorry, in verse 2, with the idea of pain with bulls and vowing with their lips, He's pointing us to the ultimate sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ on the cross. When he tells the people of Israel to worship rightly and sacrifice rightly and then turn around and do good to the orphan, he is calling them into a restoration of the law that is found in Leviticus to offer all of those sacrifices, and to to celebrate all of those feasts, to remember what God did in the Exodus. And friends, Jesus is the culmination of what happened in the Exodus. Jesus is the one who slayed our slave-holding master. And his name is not Pharaoh, his name is Sin. Jesus is the one who died In our place, much like the Passover lamb. And his blood has, to borrow from the English hymn, his his blood has made the phallus clean. His blood worked for me. Jesus cleanses us through his work on the cross. He dies, and then he comes back to life. 
This is what God is ultimately calling his people to. To trust in his son, Jesus Christ. And he tells the people of Israel, when you trust me, when you follow me, when you repent and believe, then I will heal you, I will love you, I will relent from the judgment that is coming upon you. He tells them he will be like dew to them so that they will prosper. He mentions the lily and, and the, the, the trees of Lebanon, right? That Lebanon was known for these cedar trees. They, they still are today, right? It's on their, on their flag. Um, but but these, these cedar trees that would grow strong and beautiful. And they were evergreen, right? Which means they were fruitful year-round. God wants his people to know that he is the one who answers them when they call. It is not the idols. It is not the kings of Egypt or Assyria. It is him. He's the one who looks after them. He is the one who makes them fruitful. He is better than their idols. And he finishes the the book with this idea that his ways are the right ways. The upright walk in them and the transgressors stumble in it. And so there's this, this beautiful call from the gospel with these words. Friend, you are not upright on your own. You cannot follow the laws of God in your own strength. You need Jesus' righteousness. And on the cross and in his resurrection, he gives it to you if you trust him. But if your pride keeps you from following him, you will stumble in the ways of the Lord. You will not be able to fake it forever. This is a good time to remind us of our big idea. God is judge to those outside of Jesus. God is the father of those in Jesus. When God has given these warnings throughout the book of Hosea, he is giving them to unbelievers, reminding them that he is the judge. But when he tells them, I will save you, I will redeem you, I will draw you back, I will resurrect you, he is speaking to those that believe him. He's speaking to those of whom he is the Father. So I want to close today with three very simple and sharp questions. The first one is, where are you? Where are you? Are you trusting in yourself and your own righteousness? Are you seeking out kings for yourself? Are you wanting to talk to Assyria and Egypt to try to gain control of your life and earn favor from God? Or are you trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone? Where are you, friend? Second question, are you comfortable in your complacency? Are you comfortable when you're running away from God? Are you okay with that? Is your heart content with whether you're close to the Lord or not? Because if it is, you are on a dangerous path, friend. You may be a believer that has just wandered too far away and you need to be drawn back, or 
Maybe you're not a believer. Maybe you need to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Final question. Do you long for more of God? Do you long for more of God? Not the gifts from God or the things of God, but God himself. Do you want to be in his presence? Do you see him as the ultimate prize? Brothers and sisters in Christ, I encourage you. Pray and live and, 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 and train your mind and heart to see God as the ultimate prize. Long for Him alone. Friend, if that is impossible for you, repent. Trust in Christ. See the truth and the beauty of the gospel. You and I deserve nothing but death and hell. But because of God's love, because of the depths of his grace and mercy, he has given us a way to be saved. He has given us a way to be forgiven. And that way is Jesus. Stop running from him and run to him. God is judged to those outside of Jesus. But to those in Jesus, he is a good and loving father. Let us trust him today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. Um, God, I, I ask that you would, you would confront us with, with our complacency. You would confront us with our rebellion. Father, you would help us to see those times when we've, we've either are now or have run far from you. And God, if we are near to you now, draw us closer. Help us to, to enjoy fellowship with you. Help us to, to have a deeper and better understanding of the gospel. Let the fruit of our life come from that. Father, if we aren't there, if we are your child, draw us back. If we are not your child, bring us to repentance. Bring us to faith in Jesus. Help us to see the beauty and the truth of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, do the work that only you can do. Help us to believe. We believe, Father, but help our unbelief. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, friends, it's time.